everyone, and we're live. You're tuning to the Cosmic Dream Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin. And today I have an individual in the studio with me that I have been wanting on the podcast for a bit. This particular individual is really inspiring to me because he has done so many different things and continues to do a wide variety of things uh, in the different spaces that he inhabits today. Dean, um, for those who might not know who you are, how would you introduce yourself and how would you describe what you do? <laughs> Hi, Kevin. First of all, thank you for inviting me to the podcast. Uh, great pleasure to be here. And also, obviously, looking at the new space. <laughs> Very nice. I like Much it. chaotic sometimes. No, nah, man, that's part of the charm. Yep. Um, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I've always asked myself that as well. I mean, but if I was to sum it up, mm. I'm probably just like the ever curious mm. person uh, that's, you know, really interested in all things subcultural yep. from music to yep. food yep. to graphics mm. to anime. Yeah, anime. <laughs> anime, no. and, and actually Mob M Mobile Suit Gundam was oh, my, was my yeah. you know, if you, if you watch all yep. the 80s, uh, all, the, all, the, all, the, all the Mac stuff, yep. that was really like my childhood love. Yep. Um, and I don't know, just... I've always just been very curious about things that are visual. Yeah. I'm just attracted to things that are very visually engaging. You mm. know, this is just how my brain and my, I guess my 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 eyes are, mm. are switched on. Yeah. And I just dabble in everything from, I guess, architecture, which is obviously my background. Mm. I study architecture, but then that gave me really the, I guess, the foundation to see everything within the same timeline. So everything from music, mm. architecture to graphics, they're yep. really part of the same ecosystem. Yep. So I I guess I just dabble in all these things yep. all at once. Yep. Yeah. So let's kickstart the conversation with architecture. What do you mean when you say architecture gave you the foundation to look at uh, different things like music and art and visuals differently? What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, if you know architecture, okay, basically contrary to popular belief, mm. architecture isn't just about boring structures or buildings mm. i always get i always get the same questions oh architect so you must know how to calculate structures and <laughs> but, i mean it, it's part of that obviously but mm. obviously you work with the structural engineers for that yep. but architecture is a way of life it's a it's a method of thinking mm. it's a method of looking at things very much like jazz mm -hmm. jazz isn't defined by instruments like saxophones to your trumpets it's a state of mind yep it's the way you look at things mm. it's the way you dissect things and architecture allows you to do it because it's about space you, you 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 move through a space, you absorb its colors, mm. the atmosphere, the lighting, yep. um, people, mm. the flow, the circulation, right? You listen to a soundtrack in space. Mm. Everything happens in space. Yep. Whether you're conscious or subconscious of it, your thoughts, your memories, mm. they happen in space. Yep. They get activated in space. Mm. Your childhood memories to your current most uh, you know instant memories, yep. you know, like, like what you just did five minutes ago. Yep. Everything happens in uh, in space. So, yep. if you if you think about architecture in that way, then everything that we do creatively happens in the same timeline. Yep. And I'm deeply fascinated by by that. Yep. And architecture is one of those things that combines everything from construction to mm. techniques yep. to aesthetics. You know, uh, you engage the, your your right brain, you engage your left brain. Yep. It's all encompassing. Mm -hmm. It's just about the ecosystem. So, yep. yeah. And since you mentioned that most people have this misconception of what architecture is, I'm curious to know, how did you arrive at this particular conclusion of yours that mm. it involves uh, so many metaphysical concepts mm. and artistry that most people don't get? How did you arrive at this conclusion? Um, 
was it someone uh, said something to you? Was it a piece of writing uh, mm. that you wrote or, or that you read? Yeah, what was it? Yeah, I think it's a, uh, I can't really exactly pinpoint one direct source. Yeah. Because I guess, again, back to my curiosity, I've always been hungry. Mm. You know? So back in architecture school, I'll just be reading post-structuralist yep. theories like- For fun. Derrida, Heidegger, <laughs> for fun. You know, yeah. just- also because the curriculum required me to to do so, architecture yep. theory and all that. But through that, you just you just get deeper into it, you know. And then obviously, I was also very, I guess, uh, influenced by the Japanese methodology of uh, space, mm. of uh, the whole like Shintoism and architecture, of like more metaphysical ways of looking at architecture. Mm. Like, if you like, dating back to the 70s, like the metabolist way of looking at architecture, mm-hmm. which is about the human body and its relationships to the environment yep. through buildings or non-building, if yep. you like, metaphysical structures and stuff. So I think tr- through all these readings and obviously my relationship with music, especially mm. in jazz, yep. you know, if you listen to Miles, if you listen to John Coltrane, these artists, they, they didn't follow a certain way of thinking. Mm. They just did it. They just improvise. Yep. Like Miles was hated by a lot of the purists because he kind of disrupted traditional ways of thinking of yep. jazz, you know, which is about modal jazz. You know, mm. when he went into the modal phase, a lot of the purists just went, oh, this isn't jazz because they weren't used to that, the, I guess the preconceived canons of yep. what jazz music is. So it's the same thing. Yep. Um, and I guess I've always been quite blessed with that way of just thinking slightly that's a bit left of center. Yeah. <laughs> knowing, knowing knowing that there are other ways to look at the mm. same thing with different pairs of lenses yep. and stuff. So yeah, I mean. Yep. Taking a little bit of a tangent, I have to ask, what has your relationship uh, been like with music? Mm. Was it something that uh, fr- from your earliest memories of, of being a child, it was in the house? Was it someone who introduced you or was it something you picked up later in, in, in your teens and in your young adult life? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I must say that, you know, compared to a lot of other more mu- mu- musician-centric families, yeah. I didn't grow up with uh, that kind of background. I mean, my dad, with all love and respect to him, he, he listened to pretty bad music. <laughs> 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 but yeah. uh, I think it was, uh, I think it was probably in my teens where I kind of stumbled upon music like uh, Level 42, mm-hmm. Human League. Yep. Um, you know, obviously Depeche Mode, and obviously back back in the in the eighties, you know, Singapore had that whole sort of sort of like synth pop phase. So I guess my years always had gravitated towards that kind of warmth, mm. that sort of structure, that kind of synthesizing synthesizer tones and whatnot. So mm. I think it's just the way my 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 years were tuned. Yep. And obviously, being a typical Chinese family, you grew up playing classical piano. <laughs> <laughs> you learn the skills. So you, you didn't know. escape that as well. Yeah, I didn't escape as well. You know, like the traditional trajectory yeah. of like learning. Pick an instrument. Pick an instrument. Yeah. But then I think that gave me a, a keen sense of uh, skills and musicality. And then obviously then one thing led to the, to the other. And then when I went to Australia to study my architecture degree, and when I got introduced to rave culture mm. and deep house, yep. that was it. Yep. Like my mu- Then my relationship with music really just became this highly obsessive yeah. <laughs> thing. Yeah. yeah. Was it always clear to you that you wanted to have or you wanted to pursue music as a career? Was it always evident and clear to you or was it always a balancing act between uh, being a student of architecture and wanting to pursue that and music? It's funny that you mentioned the word career because I, 
I don't know. I've never been conscious of the word career. Mm. Like, Do you even see yourself as having a career today? No, I don't. Fantastic. Okay. I, that, that's the thing. You see, and that's the irony of it yep. all. But it is a career, but yep. it's not. And I think there's something that John Lennon actually said. Mm. Your life only begins when you're not having a career. Oh, your life as profound. a creative begins when yep. you're not thinking about a career. Mm. And when I read that, it really changed the way I thought about my journey. Yep. Um, obviously, one has to be pragmatic. You know, you need to think about money, yep. how to survive, yep. and all that mundane stuff. Yes, of course. And being a productive person in society. But I felt that there was always this larger picture that I was more attracted to mm. the the idea of a journey it's quite counterculture in a sense yeah it's, yeah. it's, it's very counterculture given yeah. given you know obviously I'm, I'm in my 40s as well uh back then you would never think about these things or being <laughs> a creative you know it was always like the pillars of being a, yeah. a lawyer doctor yeah. whatever so architecture was always one of those things where you knew you're gonna go in for six years mm. long course yeah so there's like a template for for people to follow exactly you know but I never really subscribed to that consciously, mm. to be honest with you. Yeah. I just always kind of forged my own, my own way, I guess. Mm. Yeah. So how how did your experience in Australia, how did it uh, inform your musical taste? And has it, uh, what profound effects did, did being overseas and getting exposed to like a wider uh, mm. party or wider music culture, what did it do uh, to your relationship with music? I think first and foremost, it's about making yourself uncomfortable. Uncomfortable. Dis I love discomfort. Quite paradoxical, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I love discomfort because when you are placed in a foreign environment or uh, an environment that you're not necessarily exposed to mm. uh, habitually, mm. actually you find that your senses are heightened. You are more you're more prone to absorbing things that you are not familiar with. Would it be like a sense of sensitivity? Yeah. So when I was in Perth, yeah. Contrary again to popular belief that Perth was boring, mm. it had a great thriving underground scene. They had like university radios. Yeah. They were playing the freshest jazz, yeah. hip hop, mm. drum and bass, jungle, rave music, yeah. deep house, especially, which is my first love. Mm. And I don't know, it's also the dude with the landscape of Perth, mm. like the dry scent of eucalyptus, being out in the verdant landscape, you know, and just being out there. Mm. It gave me a sense of just like openness. Um, to really just start exploring for myself, looking inside myself, yeah. dealing all this obviously with loneliness, homesickness, yeah. but eventually overcoming that yeah. and becoming almost like a chameleon in a foreign culture, but assimilating yourself into the culture yeah. and learning about things. Yeah. And that was very instrumental in my, I guess in my beginnings, in yeah. my DNA. Yeah. How did you uh, still hold on to these lessons after your, your, your experience in Perth and coming back to Singapore? How did you hold on to these lessons and continuously wanting to to push uh, certain music activities or whatever that you wanted to do with music in Singapore where the, the culture might be different, the community might be different, the type of music that we hear in Singapore and we listen to in Singapore might, might be different mm. as well? I think it's about the people that you gravitate towards. Mm. You know, uh, I think it's about creating your own tribe. So when I came back then, obviously I met Kay co-founder of Darkening Wax, mm. uh, who has been working with me for almost close to 20 years, believe it or not. Wow. And we were still running the label together, playing yep. together. I think essentially it's about aligning yourself with really like-minded creative people. And you understand you can actually design and create your own ecosystem. Mm. You may not know where it's going to go. Obviously, we didn't know back then. We just we just did it. Yeah. We just went, you know what, fuck it. Let's, let's just do it. We we have our day jobs, whatever, yeah. but we have this outlet that we want to creatively yeah. and soulfully 
inject ourselves and immerse ourselves mm. when we can into this course. Mm -mm. And but we didn't have any goals or expectations. We just did it because we believe like this is the jazz way. You know, like <laughs> the the suffering musician, yep, the yep, suffering yep. artist, and you gotta suffer for that shit, yep, right? Yep. It's the same kind of uh, I guess discourse if you yep. like, you know. What was was there ever or was there like a music scene when you first started uh, Darker Than Wax or what was it like? Yeah. I mean, there's always been a scene. There's always been a scene back in Singapore. Even, I mean, even in the 80s when you have like, if you go to Substation, mm. there was already a punk scene back yeah. then. So I think the music thing was always in Singapore. In, a, in, in any corner of the world, yeah. there will always be a countercultural uh, ecosystem. Yeah. I was very fortunate to be uh, immersed in that. Mm. Uh, and obviously Zook being... The, I hear the stories. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Zook back then was really crazy. Yeah. It was really like the, I guess, like the Studio 54 or like mm. the Paradise Garage of, yep. New, uh, of Singapore. Yep. And obviously, it's very sad to see what it has become because a lot of the younger generation look at Zook and go like, that's trash, yeah. which, is, which it is. It's trash now. But mm. the Zook I grew up with was really our DNA. Yep. We saw the freshest Detroit techno DJs there on a Thursday. <laughs> like I saw Stacey Pullen, Jeff Mills. Yep. When I was 18 there, it blew my fucking minds out. You know what I mean? Like you're an 18 year old guy looking at this really good Afro-American, like, you know, DJ playing yep. the freshest music. Yep. That was my DNA. That was my, so I, we, we always knew that there was an intrinsic culture that we can tap into. Mm -hmm. And using Dark and Erect was a perfect way to assimilate ourselves into that culture, forming new languages, forming new dialogues with other people who are also stepping up at the same time. Yeah. And yeah, all these different relationships and bonds were, were I guess, were established yeah. through that. Yeah. And now that you you, you brought up that, um, let's say Zook is not as it was back then. And I think it can be said a lot of uh, different uh, cultural icons in Singapore has been gone, like uh, Substation. It's yes. no more at the same location. Regrettably. Do you f re regrettably, yes. Yeah. Do you feel like uh, that there is this hole missing when we think about culture and the arts in Singapore. That there is this like gaping hole that mm. uh, is is gone. Like it will never be uh, yeah. built up the same way because these things take time and people kind of dictate uh, the importance of these structures. It's not just the branding, it's not just the name, but it's the people across the years that inhabit these spaces and give life to them. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great uh, point on question, actually. I, I think... Essentially, I always see Singapore as a blessing and a curse. Mm. Its progress is also its curse. Mm. It's always like a... I, I, I love the coins Singapore as, a, as an eraser city. Eraser. Eraser. It erases whatever it has. It doesn't like to remember. Yeah. It just likes to erase. Yeah. From the Pearl Hill, you know, from Pearl Bank Tower to the very favorite S11 next to substation that mm. they gutted for their horrendous yeah. tunnel way just to connect <laughs> uh, vehicular facilitate vehicular access to yep. Orchard Road. Yep. I just think that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. That's ludicrous, yep. right? So we're always caught in this transitional sort of flux in mm -hmm. Singapore where we can't ever hold on to a critical mass enough for say a creative ecosystem to build and flourish. Yeah. We we always create and then we get destroyed. Yep. You know, by by <clears throat> by some policy. Yeah. So we're always in this kind of start, stop, start, yep. stop. And I, yeah. I find that very fascinating and I'm trying to actually look at it in a more open-minded manner now mm -hmm. and try to tap into that yeah. temporary nature. Yeah. It gets very frustrating from time to time, don't get me wrong. Yeah. I still get very jittered by it, but you have to work with this eraser city yeah. and just learn to, 
I guess flow flow with the tempo, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like it's it's just how the game is structured here in Singapore yeah. and it's about dealing with it? Yeah, it's just about dealing with it in a manner that is as soulful and as truthful as you want it to be. Yeah. I mean, we all go through our gripes, you know. Mm. We can we can curse, we can swear, yeah. we can we can say this is shit, this is not. But at the same time, I would argue there's also infrastructure and resources here that I guess you can be savvy and perceptive enough mm. to tap into and utilize it to uh, your own advantage for yourself yep. and the community that you care for. So I think it's a twofold thing. Mm. It's a yin and yang thing, you know. Yep. I, I don't necessarily hate it yep. 100%. Yep. I'm learning just to tap more wisely into it. Yep. Yep. And I've noticed that uh, traveling is a big part of what you do as well with regards to your music. I'm curious to know, when, when, when you travel overseas, what stands out to you about the particular culture, be it music, the arts, what stands out to you uh, over uh, over there? Okay, again, right, um, in my earlier years, I always aspire, or I guess the proverbial sort of, the grass is greener on the other side. We've all thought that. Yeah. All, we, I no longer subscribe to that. What changed? I think it's just realizing that every place has its nuances. Every place has its gripes and its positivity. Yeah. And tourism is a very, traveling is a very strange concept. But you travel with the brightest lenses. Oh yeah, rosy. you know yeah. you're always going to come back, yep. right? So you you go there yep. and you go like, this is this is perfect. You're only, you're, 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 yeah. you're only there for like three you're days or something. Three days. Yeah. You go to New York for two weeks, you know, yeah. oh my God, this is the greatest. You go to Berlin, oh my God, this is like, I so want to be there. Of course we want to be there. Yep. But at the same time, you fail to see the other layers of gentrification or maybe mm. some other social political processes in the city that can also equally contaminate yeah. the city yeah. in the same way as what is happening to Singapore. Mm. But I guess if anything that I was to tap into in other cultures, I guess it's the looseness. Looseness? It's the kind of fluidity that maybe exists in more other cultures yeah. as opposed to say maybe more Southeast Asian cultures, Asian cultures where I guess maybe in a post-Confucian society, we're always toying with a lot of baggage. Of like, <laughs> you know, like you can't be too much, you know, you yeah. can't be too radical. Yeah. You gotta be like, you gotta respect certain foundation, traditions and roots, yeah. which I get that, of course, you know, we all have that. But I think because of that, it has also prevented us from being a bit more fluid with the way we program our city. Mm. I don't think everything needs to be told to the T what you need to do. Yeah. There must be some accidents. Great cities are built out of serendipity. Mm -hmm. If you look at London, there's a huge tradition of serendipity. There's a bit of humor. Mm -hmm. There's a bit of grime. There's yeah. a bit of dirt, right? Yep. Like New York. Things take time to grow and to fester, to contaminate. And I think interesting cities are born out of that. Yeah. Singapore is the complete reverse yeah. opposite of that. We're really rigid. We are so engineered. Yeah. But through that, a certain beauty gets, I mean, there's a, there's a certain beauty out of that too. You know? like, there's a certain beauty in, in the kind of highly engineered process. But I find that very stifling sometimes, of course. Mm. You know? And traveling allows me to just break out of the matrix, just like for everyone else yeah. as well, you know, just tap into something with a different lens. Yeah. So what was one place in particular that, kind of inspire you with this idea of looseness because it is so the idea or, or the word or the context of the mm. the word looseness feels so vast sometimes yeah, so what yeah. what what does that mean to you and how how did it look like to you um i think this is really like pre pre google maps days okay you know? okay yeah, i i really like to how define my travels into two phases. Yep. Like the pre the pre-social media phase and the current social media what phase. What did the pre-social media phase look like though? 
the state of mind of traveling back then is very different because you get lost. Mm. You really don't, you really have to rely on your own compass to yep. navigate a city. Yep. Then you start to di- discover- You notice different things. Exactly. Yeah. But now you can basically tap on Google Maps, see where to check out the best hipster coffee. Yep. It's very, it's a very different way of traveling now. Mm. And maybe for me, I'm lucky, you know, because I'm much older that I'm, I was able to tap into a different, complete different state of mind of traveling. So, for me, London, Barcelona in the early 2000s mm. was super interesting because it was still quite dangerous. Like, uh, Shoreditch wasn't the Shoreditch of now. <laughs> you could see, see syringes on the mm. floors, you know, like yep. it was like super like jungle, yep. like out there. And I really liked that kind of gray areas. Those gray areas, like, you know, when you're slightly like nervous, yep. you watch over your back. Yeah but you get lost into these like DIY pop-up spaces. People were just doing all these very interesting things with music, mm. especially in London, which to me was, I guess, my spiritual city for music. I, I tapped into London so much, yeah. into the whole Jamaican uh, like dubstep culture, yeah. into the broken beats, yeah. into uh, the house music, into jungle basically. So I was very fortunate to tap into that, to that culture way back. Yeah. And that really was the backbone of my whole I guess DNA yeah. for my travels and yeah. stuff. Yeah. And how did traveling to these different places, how did it influence your musical style? Just the eclecticism of it, just the diversity of it. To yeah. realize that every music borrows from each other. Mm. Uh, no one music is an island. Like no music is an island. Yeah. Every music is intrinsic to each other. Yeah. Like, and when you realize that there are common uh, trains of thought and influences then you start to realize everything collapses. Time is irrelevant. <laughs> there is no timeline. You know what I mean? Like there is no timeline. Mm. There's only a point of view. Mm. It's what you want to hear. Yep. It's how you want to apply uh, years of listening into that one methodology, yep. to that one art form. Yep. So to, to me, that's how I, I look at DJing. I look at musicality in that way. Yep. Yeah. So I have, to, I have to ask, when, when you're being tasked to, to play a set or when you're being tasked to to plan a, a track list or a set list, what, what are the foundations or how, how do you start the process of doing something like that? What goes through your head? What are, because I believe you have in, intensive musical knowledge. You have intensive, uh, you have, you are exposed to a wide variety of, of music. Sure, so sure. Where, where do you even begin for, for something like that? It really depends. Like, uh, I don't actually consciously plan a playlist playlist when I DJ. Yeah. Or whether it's for a space that I'm desi- doing music programming for, yeah. designing for, which I used to do a lot back then in my earlier days. But in the, in the realm of DJing, I think more about moods. Moods? Yeah. I think like more emotions? about colors and moods and mm. emotions. Uh, I, if, so if you like, I, I sort of... I sort of sculpt my playlist around atmospheres, yep. around moods, yep. whether it's for my own Darkening Wax parties or yeah. for parties that I get booked to play for. I think about moods. I think about the city the city that, it, that I'm playing for. Obviously, I've done some background research. Yep. I know the, the roots of that city yep. or maybe the the kind of preferences of, say, a promoter in Singapore that might be, book, that oh, might be booking me for, for the party. Yeah the demographics then I I kind of tap into the mood of that yeah. of the party and that's how I that's how I operate actually yeah. so I don't I don't have like a strict 
a playlist of say 40 tracks, you know, mm. because, uh, and also because I, I think like an octopus, I'm able to connect all these dots. So I'm able to, I'm able to just go between say deep house to like hip hop, to like drum and bass, yep. to like Brazilian music, yep. to like African centric music, to world music with like, by the way, I really hate the, the, the category world music. I yep. think it's a, it's a, it's an aberration, <laughs> but I mean, you know, it's just, just like, just like global groups. Right. Mm. So I'm just able to tap, and find all these little spots and connect the dots. Very much like say, how a, a selector like Giles Peterson, whom I'm sure you know, the very renowned uh, collector, that's how he DJs. He tells a story. So I think DJs are just storytellers. Yeah. Uh, where you strip yourself, you strip yourself from your ego because it's not about you. Mm. You are not the center of attention. Yep. The center of attention is the floor. Is the energy between the dancers, the people who are there. Yeah. You are just providing the story. Yeah. You're providing the soundtrack. And that's all you should ever be. Yeah. Yeah. And in 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 talking more about this energy and uh with different crowds and different cities with different cultures, how do you as a DJ, how do you maintain uh the, the energy of the crowd throughout the entire set? Is it is it false to, to believe that you have to maintain this level of energy throughout the entire set? Or do you play with it or do you uh, let it dip for sometimes and you raise it up again? What is what what is that process or like for you? Yeah, again, great question. Uh, you have to pace it. Mm. And it really depends on your length of your set. Yep. Obviously, if you're, if you're an hour, you know, you just kind of like- you just bang it. Out, <laughs> just bang it straight. And I think that's a problem with a lot of the younger, the younger generation DJs now. Yep. Without, without any uh, uh, disrespecting anyone, uh, I'm just saying objectively, yep. I think there's no pacing anymore. Mm. Everything is, every track is like a banging track. Yep. But then if I was to play a two or three hour set, right, I really like to pace it out. I like to just drop it. I like to just really- maybe play a bang track, give them some, some endorphins, you know, like it's all about resetting dopamines because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I believe in that, right? Yeah. It's all about resetting and calibrating dopamines on the, on the dance floor. Yeah. You need to know how to regulate the dopamines. Yeah. If you play bangers of the bangers, half an hour, you'll be tired. Mm -hmm. So you really need to stretch it out. Yeah. Drop it down, bring it up, pepper it, some bright sounds, yeah. maybe go darker, maybe go bassier, yeah. maybe go a bit more like, maybe, I don't know, more, more, more melodies, more synths, you know, in different ways, right? So you're just peppering them. You're like yeah. a chef, basically. You're cooking. You're yeah. just cooking all the yeah. time. Yeah. And it kind of speaks to the maturity and the expertise of the DJ, right? Yes. To to know how to pace, to have the the widest breadth of the different types of sounds and exactly. music and not be so, uh, oh, I'm just someone playing Japanese music. That's all. Exactly. Yeah. Or like you're just someone play who plays, oh, I only play house music. Mm. I only play tech house. I'm yep. a techno DJ. Yep. I'm not interested in that. Yep. I play everything. Yeah. And I play even more yeah. beyond that. So, <laughs> I mean, like for me, like for, I'll give you like, if you talk about numerically, like if you mm. play jungle, yep. which is like 86 BP, 80 to 86 BPM, yep. right? You can fuse it with a hip hop track. But mm. I don't hear a hip hop DJ actually play jungle, but you can actually like go double time, quick yep. time, yep. And, and then half step. You can totally do that. You can play techno with, dub, uh, mm. with dubstep. So it's just about knowing rhythms, polyrhythms, knowing how to play yep. with varying tempos and yep. energies. Yep. And obviously this comes through years and years and years of collecting, really putting your time, yep. doing your homework, listening to different types of stuff, knowing the fresher sounds, but also having your food back in the archives, yep. right? Back and forth. Yep. You know, it's really about that. And I I never deviated from that journey. Yep. It has always stayed the same, which maybe why to a certain extent, even to now, I'm still relevant as a as a as a as a as a DJ, yep. as a selector. I'm still able to play to the younger generations yep. as much as I can play to say a, an older crowd. Yep. It doesn't matter to me. It's it's the same thing. You know, yep. like yeah. 
was there ever any uh, fear or uncomfortability in uh, trying to tie different pieces and different genres of music together, not by uh, the facade of how the music sounds, but through the different variables that you mentioned, like the BPMs, uh, how the chords and everything, how how they all uh, feel to you. Was there any fear or comfortably when you first s- tried to do something like that? Oh yeah, most definitely. I mean, I you know back in the earlier days of honing my craft, yeah. you know, I just, just spent hours just train wrecking my mixes, and <laughs> just like failing and failing yep. and failing and making like yep. mistakes after mistakes. Yep. And don't get me wrong, like. I, 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 even to this day, no matter how polished you are as a DJ, mm-hmm. you will still make those mistakes. And mm-hmm. I don't, I think those mistakes are great. It keeps you humble. It yep. keeps you sane. Yep. It keeps you, your feet to the ground. Like, you know that, hey, you're only as good as your last set. Yep. Yep. I always believe that you are only as good as your last set. So I don't really ponder, even if I played a killer set, I made like maybe three, four and people go crazy. Yep. I don't, I don't really, I don't really ponder. I don't really relish in those things. Mm. Yeah, of course you get a high, you know, yeah. but, I just think, hey, that's done. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. But I'm just constantly searching for other ways to 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 put two tracks together in a different way. You can always play two same tracks in multiple permutations. You can always remix those two tracks on the spot in various different ways. Mm. So it's about being courageous. It's about being bold. Mm. But it's also being completely gracious about making mistakes and realizing, hey, it's fun. It's fine if you fuck up the mix. Yeah. Move on. Yeah. And as soon as you can take that step, right? It's amazing. Yeah. It's liberating. Yeah. yeah. I would imagine being on stage and accidentally fucking up oh, yeah. mixing. That is nerve wracking. Oh yeah. 100%. 100%. <laughs> and I've done it so many times mm. in my earlier days when yep. maybe you just lose concentration, you lose focus or yep. you get caught up in something else that yeah. you shouldn't be and then you, you do that you train wreck or you think that the key is coming in, and then when the keys come the keys clash and you go like oh shit yeah. that sounds terrible yeah. but then it's back to your technique how quick you're able to remedy that yeah. and if you can't rule number one don't delay the train wreck <laughs> take it out <laughs> always like don't try if you know mm. it's a train wreck already forget about saving it yep. cut the other track out yep. be abrupt be brutal move on yep. and don't hop on that because you got another two more hours to go. Mm. It's a psychology thing as well. Yep. A psychological thing is about, me- it's about balancing your mental health yep. when you're DJing as well yep. because you need to balance that. Yep. You're constantly being your worst enemy. Yeah, because yeah. you have your conversations up there and oh, yeah. you have to also physically, talk to the people. you have to talk, you have to engage and you have to physically right. perform as well. Yeah, it's many things all at once. Mm. It's, it's, you, are, you are like, you exist in multiple ways all within the two hours <laughs> or however long your set is, yep. you know? Yeah. Yep. And a lot of people don't realize that actually. There are many things that you absorb and yep. you put out, which is why by the end of a set, I'm usually just destroyed. Yeah. I'm tired. Yeah. I'm just tired. Yeah. yeah. And this is all if things go well. Yeah. You have things happen unexpectedly, the sound cuts off, something goes wrong oh and then you have to figure it out, right? Or the needle breaks or oh. like the CDJ doesn't work yep. or like one of the mixer channels don't work. Yep. I mean, You've experienced it all. Oh man, I've ex- I experienced it all. <laughs> I've experienced it and troubleshooted it all yeah. as well. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, like, I yeah. don't think anything can really just kind of phase like, you. Phase me anymore. Yeah. Yeah, to be so, apart from your immense passion for music, I'm curious to know what has sustained you throughout your journey as a creative? What other forms of inspirations have you uh, gathered that is, let's say, non music related, non architecture related? What are these things that inspires you to continue pushing and to continue moving? Mm. Yeah. 
I mean, just looking at other practitioners or mm. people that I respect. Again, I won't name names because there's just so many influences, but just looking at how other people, the way they take care of their bodies or they stay being a creative. Uh, take care of their bodies, of yeah, the physical. The physical and the mental, obviously, you know, and juggling, uh, hectic. Because creatives, they think all the time. Mm. It's a it's a 24-7 thing. You, 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 you consume it. You eat it. Yeah. You live it. You yeah. can't ever divorce yourself from it, right? Because you're right in it. Mm. But just looking at how other people have maybe managed to do it better at balancing their routines, maybe incorporating certain more sustainable techniques. Mm. You know? So I, I just look at all these different ways and uh, incorporating them where possible mm. into my own journey as a creative. Yeah. Whether eating better, sleeping earlier, yeah. developing exercising techniques, you know, breathing, breath work, yep. meditation. What, I mean, what, what have you, you know, like, so... There, there are various ways and techniques that you can and these things give me inspiration mm. because the thing is if you keep your body light if you if you if you keep yourself energetic yep. then your curiosity levels are always going to be high yep. and there's always about taking care of your dopamine levels as well which yep. I am becoming more and more uh, in tune with the neurological side of things yeah. yeah so when you say taking care of your dopamine levels what does that practice look like what does it mean to uh uh to to be aware of of your dopamine levels because i think dopamine when 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 people think of it they think of social media they think of the instant gratification of it where uh within seconds of of any time in our lives we can just turn on our smartphones we get an instant hit of dopamine but a lot of these things are uh intangible yeah Mm. we we don't really know the actual uh variables and metrics in our head yeah so so what does that look like to you I mean, obviously, I'm I'm equally a prisoner as everyone else to my phone. Uh, I would be very hypocritical to mm. say that I'm doing a great job at it because a lot of my work depends on this yep. this this thing here. Yeah. But at the same time, I've also learned first thing when I wake up, I don't check my phone. I actually do other things. So it's uh, a conscious decision. It's a very conscious decision to not turn my phone on. Yeah. In fact, my phone is most most of the time is not in the bedroom. Mm. It's always outside. Yeah. And I find out that that's great because I naturally wake up. I'm a I'm an early bird, anyways. Yeah. Um, but doing other things like breath work, breathing, stretching, yeah. all these things just kind of reset your levels first before you touch the phone. Mm. All these things sounds very mundane and very basic, but they're extremely crucial in mm. in maintaining your your mental health yeah. and how you how you maneuver and navigate yourself through through the day. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Was there a noticeable was there a noticeable difference uh, before and after you took up these practices, or have you always done these practices? Oh no, it's it's only like the last few years that mm. really. I mean, I, I also went through. I'm not gonna lie, I went through micro burnout phases where I just get extremely irritated, grumpy, yeah, because I just took took on too much on my plate, yeah. Because as you know, I dabble in so many different things that it can get a lot. Even if you don't want it to be a lot, it is a lot, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Clients hitting you up. Yeah. But eventually, sometimes you just have to tell yourself to say no to yourself. What you does that mean? To, yeah, It's like to reject the urge to check your phone for work after a certain period of time. Mm. Is to really just say, hey, you know what? Stop. Mm. And as soon as I've done that, it really benefited the way I handle my work. And I became... I guess, more at peace with it. Mm. I became more productive. Again, I don't believe in productivity. So when I use the word productive, it means I'm able to just do, make decisions very quickly Mm. that are uh, on point, you know, but 
productivity to me doesn't necessarily mean clocking the number of hours you yep. need to be there. I don't believe in that yep. at all. I just believe in making the right decisions within the shortest amount of period of time yep. so you can just dabble quickly within different areas of your work. Yep. Whether it's architecture to music yep. to off-track, obviously, my listening bar. So yep. as, soon as, I'm, as soon as I was able to do that and incorporate like a very rigid exercising routine, mm. it really helped with my output. Why do you think the exercise helped you in 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 all these different aspects? What do you have a hypothesis about it? Yeah. Um, no, I, I I just think that it really relaxes the person. It takes you away from just being you know, in your head too much. Yeah, just being like just swimming. Swimming for me is amazing because it's meditative. Yep. Like you're just constantly watching your your breath work. You're watching your strokes. Yep. You know. So for me, that is crucial <laughs> if I don't swim in a week right yeah. due to whatever reason maybe bad weather yeah. like, yo I go crazy mm. I, I get very you feel it. I feel it I feel, mm. I, I feel something is wrong in my body I, I feel like you know I, I can't I, I get restless yeah. I, I, I can't really concentrate anymore so when I swim immediately after that I, I'm I'm calm mm. I'm able to just harness myself again with my work I'm able to talk to my clients better and yep. I'm able to talk to my guys better, yep. whatever, like it helps. Yeah. That, that, that twice a week, right. Yeah. is extremely important. Yeah. yeah. So how do you juggle that when you travel though? Yeah. That, that's, that's, that's <laughs> a challenge. <laughs> yeah. That's always a challenge. So it really depends on where I go. So yep. when I go traveling, I always try to make sure, okay, is there like a public mm. pool nearby? Yep. Should I bring my trunks? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm quite, I'm quite, I'm kind of like quite kiasu that yeah. way. But I'll you have learned to, to recognize the importance of swimming to you. 100%. Or whether just stretching. Yep. Like I do uh, intensive 30 to 45 minutes stretching mm. every morning. Yeah. Now when, yep. I, when I'm in my routine, mm. even when I'm traveling, unless if I'm playing a late show, if I, no matter what, I always try to incorporate some form of exercise into that routine, mm. even if I'm on the road. Yeah. Because I just think that it helps with my whole psyche of traveling, yeah. of my mental health, especially. Yeah. I love the rituals, man. Oh, thank yeah, you, man. No, the ritual has really kept me going for yep. the last 10 years, yeah. I would say. Yeah. So <clears throat> you mentioned about um, being able to come to complex decisions about certain creative tasks really quickly. And to me, when I hear that and when I listen to the different interviews and uh, different writings that you have done for different magazines and interviews before, you speak about this sort of intuition. Mm. And the word that comes to mind to me is intuition. Um. I have to ask, how did you learn to trust your intuition that that is um, perhaps the, the, the right decision at that point in time? Because I can imagine with the different uh, fields you're in, the different spaces that you inhabit, people constantly are asking you, hey, is this the right decision to go to? Is this the right yeah. decision to do? Is this the right thing to do? And I can imagine that bogs you down. That yeah. is a lot of uh, decision-making on one individual. Yeah. So how did you learn to trust uh, your own self that okay this is the right thing to do and have to move on to the next thing and that is the right thing yeah oh that's a great question I oh, know I think it's uh, there's never one clean answer for that there's mm. never one direct answer but I think if anything right I learn from all my projects the errors and the failures that happens with every project and there, there's always I'm sure you know as well with every project no matter how great it is there's always certain things that, that kind of went slightly pear-shaped or it just kind of went funky. But yeah. those things are always from a result of overthinking, of over-deliberation, mm. of clients being over and overly anxious. Mm -hmm. And when they project their anxiety on you, you become anxious. Yeah. Then you make your other team members anxious. Then it just becomes this vicious feedback loop of anxiety, yeah. of clouding your judgment. Yeah. 
And when you fail to strip yourself of that cloud, mm. everything else becomes lost. Mm. It becomes muggy. The creative process becomes muggy. You're not able to make the right decisions. And then what happens? You look at Pinterest. <laughs> you look at images. You look at more Instagram images. Then you, be, you actually become even more congested. Mm -hmm. So I've learned through all that process of realizing, you know what? It's about filtration. It's about realizing, yes, of course, we look at images. But you are you're also able to say, you have to detach yourself from those images and realize you need to go back to that very first point of departure mm. where your concept came from. Mm -hmm. And usually that comes from a place of what? Intuition. When you go to a space, you are, what, do you, what, do you, what do you pick up? Like maybe you might pick up the light, mm. you might pick up the scent, yeah. you might pick up certain things about the colors. Mm. That goes back to your childhood, your memories. Mm -mm -mm. Those are all intuitive things that you tap into. Yeah. So when I design, it's the same thing. I kind of tap into like the inner, the inner sort of like realm of that, 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 you know, like that, I guess like the soft matter yeah. of things, right? Yeah. And then, then I imbue that with hardware, like if you like, like, okay, looking at images yep. that can solidify my intuition. Yeah. And what you call the party in architecture, there's this concept called the party, which is P-A-R-T-I, which is like um, basically a metaphysical uh, idea mm -hmm. Uh, that you first embark upon and mm -hmm. then you root that into a more physical image just so that the physical image acts as an anchor mm -hmm. to help you remember your first point of departure. Yeah. And that image often doesn't have anything to do with a building. It could just be oh, an image of a, Do you know what I mean? It could just be an image of a door. Yeah. It could just be even an image of a pebble yeah. or whatever. Just yeah. something unrelated to the project itself. But that is powerful. Yeah. Because it anchors your your first spark. Yeah. And I always go back to that now with every on my project. Yeah. And more often than not, it's always a more I guess it, it becomes less contaminated. Mm. It is it, it's not as contrived, you yeah. know, as a project that you think about the first and foremost thing they think about, oh, let's do a feature wall. Let's let's do this beautiful wall. But I'm not I don't believe in that. Mm -hmm. I, I don't I don't engage conversation with my clients about, oh, the, the space has to be this way. Yeah. I, I leave it, I leave more gaps now with my clients. And yeah. obviously, then it's a skill on how you can manage the anxieties of your clients. Yeah. You know, how to bring them uh, to your side and say, hey, there are other ways to look at solving yeah. this issue. Yeah. This might not be the right way. This might not be the right and immediate way. Mm. Let's give some time. Yeah. You know? yeah. How have you learned to, to navigate that uh, aspect of the creative process? The... As, as in your words, dealing with the anxieties of the clients, dealing with the conceptions that they have in their head mm. about, oh, I really want this and I'm coming to you for this. Why aren't you providing me with this? Blah, blah, blah. How do you navigate that part of the creative process? Oh man, it's the toughest. Okay. I think I always, I always tell myself and to a lot of my, uh, you know, we discuss this with a lot of my peers and mm. uh, the work is never the hard thing. The interpersonal relationships <laughs> are always the hardest. Yep. And that is always something that you always have to manage. Mm. So for me, Maybe I'm just more perceptive in reading the behaviors of people. I so when I sense a client out, I kind of look at the client already mm -hmm. and more or less get a, a sort of idea who yep. that person might be. And this is not saying that I'm judging or profiling yep. a person; yep. it's getting a sense of what that person might prefer, mm. just from little things that I say, which might not mean a lot to them. But from there, I take cues mm. of how the person might be. Then I kind of maybe get a sense of their personality. Then from there, I would know 
the jargons that I will use, the techniques I will use to speak to that person. Mm. Could I be more abrupt? Can I be more direct? Can I be more impolite? Yeah. Interesting. But, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. but, but being reasonable at yeah. the same time. Or is that person just completely headstrong, completely stubborn? And if so, there's only two ways. I either say no to the project mm -hmm. because I know it's not going to make sense. Yeah. Or I give in completely to the client and I lose, I don't lose interest, but I don't, I don't invest myself that much anymore emotionally into the project. Yep. So over years, I'm able to strip myself away from the emotional side yep. and just execute what I need to do. So there's this different phases of Dean Chu mm. in a project. It yep. really depends on the, dyna dy the dynamics of people and the situation. Yeah. yeah. And when you say stripping yourself of the emotional side to a particular project, do you have an example or what, what does that actually look like? Because it's, it could be a very difficult concept for, for younger creatives to, to grasp like, or stripping your emotional self from this particular project. But if I'm putting my, my artistry or my artwork out there, that is me. Yeah. yeah. Um, no. So there's, there's ways to do this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can, you can kind of, play the whole and, and, and this is like techniques I would like to also share with my younger practitioners play the mind game with your client <laughs> what does that mean yeah. make them feel bad for their decisions mm. yeah. sometimes you know it's a bad decision they're going to do let them make the mistakes mm. because more often than not right they'll realize oh actually whatever conversations we had earlier made more sense than the point that the client is trying to drive home. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they just want to drive home simply because they pay the money yep. hence they are more entitled to think because I'm paying you the money, my opinions matter more. Which of course is true. Everyone's opinions have a certain weight. Wait, yeah. Right? And everyone's opinions are equal. Mm. You, you, you dissect them and you deconstruct them and you rehash them and you engage in the same conversation again. Mm. So let them make the mistakes sometimes and let them know that they made the mistakes so that they feel bad psychology and come back you know what actually maybe you were actually <laughs> bad in saying that and that's when you actually know okay you know what now we can have the conversation mm -mm. and I learned how to actually step back and let them make the mistakes yeah. and go back and yeah. of course you need to be wise and smart enough to know that when you need to step in and save the project yep, yep. you have to do it yep. you know so it's a it's a chess game it's yep. a chess game I don't have one answer to this whole or one solution but you get wiser at perceiving blind spots the more you deep and deeper you get into the projects yeah you, you become more experienced in identifying blind spots yeah so a word a word of a word of advice to the younger ones like younger pictures learn how to identify the blind spots mm. it's really important to learn how to identify the blind spots yeah. yeah is it also an aspect about not being too um bogged down by failures of projects or projects not being ideal but just constantly moving forward and taking exactly. and learning from those projects so that you get a lot more experience down the line yeah 100% like of course we want every project to be something that we are proud of mm. that we can say hey we got our stamp on it but at the end of the day you also have to kind of strip yourself from your ego because the thing about failure right and this is something that I have believed in Failure is beautiful. Mm. I've shared that with many of my friends have been, I hold dear to that value. I love failures much, so much, I mean, so much more than success because failure is something that is, is, is what keeps you sharp at the end of the day. It will keep your mind going because you know, okay, there are certain things that you might not have necessarily performed mm. well or you might not have communicated well 
that land that landed you there, right? So don't be afraid of that. There's always going to be certain blind spots in a project that you didn't anticipate, but it's fine because at the end of the day, the project will get completed <laughs> one way or another, right? It, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It will get finished. Yep. Your client will still walk away with yep. the project. Yep. Whether or not a relationship is good <laughs> after that. I mean, hey, I, yeah. I'm not going to vouch for that. Yep. I mean, I lost some some, mm. some, some friendships yep. with my clients through that. But yep. for most parts, I think I'm able to walk with my head high yep. and with my, my clients benefiting from every project that they have. Yep. You know? So learn to tap into your failures. Strip your ego. It's not just about you. Yep. It's about the process. Yep. It's about you learning from the process. Yeah. How have you learned to adopt this particular framework of looking at failures in such a treasured light though because I can imagine this idea of thinking um, about prioritizing failures a lot more than the successes and looking at them um, as hallmarks of ways that you could improve or ways that you could be sharper I don't think it's common so I'm curious to know how how did you learn to adopt this and does it still sting when you fail? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. (laughs) I mean definitely it still stings Mm. but it doesn't sting in a way where I become uh, disillusion or I become bitter. Mm. Like the last thing I would ever want to be is to become this bitter gatekeeper hater and all mm. like, oh, it's trash. You know, you guys don't know shit because I, I don't believe in that. I don't subscribe to that, right? So I think maybe it's just because I have always listened to jazz music and jazz is, has always been a suffering kind of music. What do you mean by like that? Like people's, like if you look at all the, all the jazz musicians, they really had a tough time like going through like believing in this whole music art form. Yeah being poor for mm. a lot of their lives, yep. struggling. Yep. Only some really made it, some don't. Mm. Um, maybe because of that kind of music that I, because it's a kind of, it's a, it's a song, it's a music of resistance. Mm. It's a music, it's an art form of suffering. Yeah. Maybe because of that, <laughs> I'm programmed already <laughs> to think, hey, you know what? It's cool. Yeah. It's going to be painful anyway. So you might as well just like the pain, love the pain and just, just go with the pain, right? Because then with pain will always come sweetness. Mm. And then pain and sweetness are just two sides of the same coin. Yeah. Why value one more than the other? Mm. It's just like happiness and sadness. Yeah. It's, it's cool. Yep. Yin and yang, yep. right? So black and white. <laughs> one day you'll be happy. One day you'll be sad. Yep. But it doesn't matter because- It's a cycle. It's, and the only constant thing that in life, that you have in life is a cycle. Mm. So as long as you break yourself from the immediacy of feeling sad or unhappy, if you look at it, it's just a cycle, then it's irrelevant. Yep. Don't you think? It's yep. irrelevant. It, yep. Then you're just obsessed with that cycle. Yeah. yeah. How did you arrive at this conclusion though? Man, I don't know. I guess, I don't know. I mean, I guess I've just also gone through a lot of my own disappointments and mm. my own trials and tribulations in my yep. life where, you know, I used to be a lot, I guess I used to be a lot more brasher, a lot a lot more egotistical and self-centered in my earlier years as a creative. Mm. You know, we all go through that trappings, right? But yep. then you realize that there's, there's no end game in that. There's no end game in just um, wanting more for yourself, mm. wanting more and more and more. It's just, I think there's more beauty in just maybe really stripping it down and just learning to be a lot less with more. Yep. So it takes years, I guess, to just kind of, but, but sometimes once you, once you hit that point, right, it's the best thing, man. Yep. Does <laughs> I it know al- it sounds very abstract, yep. but it's really the best thing. You know? Does it also speak to the phase of life that you're at right now? I think so. That think you so. are taking things a little bit slower. You're yeah. appreciating the finer details. You're not uh, 200% at, at a certain thing anymore. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I think... Not so much finer. I just think appreciating the the simpler details. 
they're kind of less contaminated details. Mm. Like, I just, I guess I just see through a lot of the tropes. Because you've seen so many. I've seen so many. Yeah. And you've seen the discourse. Yeah. And that's not to say I'm jaded. I'm not. I'm just stripping it down to the core now, more and more and more. It's like, I guess if you read Supernormal, mm. which is Jasper Morrison and Naoto Fukusawa's mm -hmm. uh, design Bible, in yep. my opinion, the Bible, uh, you guys should check it out, mm. called Supernormal. It's precisely about that. A toothbrush can be beautiful. A toothbrush in its most primordial state is a basic element. It's a basic tool that you use next to the caveman with the tools, right? Yep. So it's the same It's the same analogy. When you strip your beauty and you strip form and function back to that state, right? It does what it's supposed to do. You brush your teeth with it and that's it. Yep. And there's beauty in that. Yep. There's beauty in the daily in the daily runnings of that, mm. you know? So if you're able to apply that methodology into your work, you see things differently. You see things in its, in, in, in a cleaner, in a cleaner manner, in a less cluttered manner. Yeah. Like you're, you're just clean, you're, you're just cleansing your eyes on a daily basis, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. Could you have anticipated like at this particular phase in your life that you would have this particular mindset when you were younger? No. Or was it so detached you could have imagined? No, man. Mm. Like, um, but I, I guess, well, I picked up, I basically could draw as early as I was five. Yeah. I, I, I could just, I think naturally I just picked up the pen, yeah. the paper. My mom, she still keeps my, my comics. It's so actually. cute. <laughs> so uh, I, 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 I started illustrating when I was very young. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's just so naturally I've always, you know, you know that, you know that feeling when, before you start drawing, you could see the images in your head. Generally, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm kind of that sort of person where I could visualize, visualize already before I drew. So yeah. my, 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 my hands were just merely following the mental image. So I guess I've always seen things in that way yeah. where maybe that's also been my, in my DNA throughout my life yeah. where it seems normal just to switch myself and to think about things in this way. Yeah. Like, like I don't compare it to something else. Yeah. You know, like, this is just the way I'm, I'm used to, that yeah. I'm it. Yeah. You know, that I'm just dean that way. You know? Yeah. Like, yeah. It's just, I've just always been switched on that way, I guess. It's beautiful. Yeah. 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 If that, I mean, uh, that obviously sounds like super abstract and super woo-woo, but. But it's unique. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it is I mean, really yeah. unique. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I'm yeah. curious to know, at this phase in your life, um, what are your thoughts on creativity? How creativity? How do you think about it? Mm. Um, what does it look like to you? What inspires your own creativity today? Yeah. Um, well, I think creativity can can't ever dissociate itself from production and capital. Uh, and I think it's a very sort of tenuous sort of relationship between creativity and capital, mm. like because the current forms of creativity has already been. Contaminated. Contaminated or subsumed like, uh, and consumed by modes of capital. Mm. So if you look at fine art, art, right? It's dead in a way. Mm. It's about transactions, yep. stocks, equities, yep. you know, shares. People dabble in that, yep. right? Which is fine. But I think production capital has really instructed and has really controlled how creativity is supposed to be. Mm. So I think it's really interesting now as a creativity. How do you traverse in that environment where Yes, you are still very much part of that production. Mm -mm. You're still very much part of that capitalistic world of being a creative. And how do you move between that yep. and maybe stripping yourself 
when you can from that. Mm. And maybe engaging in these courses that are a bit more, I, again, I hate to use the word authentic, like that maybe truer to your own endeavors, your own pursuits yep. and stuff. So like in an example of track, um, obviously the listening bar that yeah. I opened with Daniel uh, last year in Singapore. Um, off track was such an endeavor. We realized, of course, we got numbers, we got to make sure it works. Yeah. But at the same time, we wanted a kind of space mm -mm. that wasn't necessarily, that isn't necessarily known strictly as an F&B space. Yeah. It's not strictly a restaurant. Yeah. It's not strictly a cocktail bar. Yeah. It's not, a it's not, it's not, anything but it's rooted in music mm. it's a social space so we really came into this in F&B industry being the weirdest kid on the block because if you see a lot of other examples they are either a great restaurant or a bar mm. but we are kind of everything yeah. it's about like tell your children I had this very interesting chat with uh, you know Dion earlier what is TYC right <laughs> is it a creative agency is it graphics yeah. you don't really know and I think there's beauty in that and I think that that sort of grey matter it's highly interesting because yep. you're able to then have more creative freedom yep. slightly away from capital but yet being rooted in this capitalistic model mm -hmm. and to see how you can disrupt certain strains of this capitalistic model yep. and be interesting but at the same time be pragmatic and make money yep. so you can support your staff yep. and, and, and get get the business going as a business. You know? yep. yeah. I mean, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Was there ever uh, fears prior to signing the lease for off-track doing things oh, like yeah. that was there a lot of oh. anxiety about it because it's something so different two years of sleepless oh god nights <laughs> if, if i can if i can be utterly brunous yeah crunching uh brutally honest crunching the numbers going back and forth with our team is this the right way mm. should we do more food should we do more bar should we do this constantly but i don't know it, bottom line is that daniel and i were very clear what is our DNA? We are social space. Mm. Rooted in music. We want that person to come in. That person might be alone. You come into off track. They can huddle it themselves mm. at a corner in a bar. Yeah. In, a, in, in a bar or, or at one of the booth seats. It doesn't matter. Because if you travel overseas, there's so many places where you don't have to wait for a friend to go check out a place. Right? You just go and check out a place. Yeah. You can be comfortable. And then, when I saw that sort of experience elsewhere that happens, I really thought that's the way we should engineer how off-track should be as a space. Mm. To make it as comfortable and as vibey as, as you can yeah. in the most authentic way where someone that comes in, irrespective of their backgrounds or their demographics, they're able to just come in and go, wow, I like this space. Yeah. I don't know why I'm comfortable. Yeah. I'm going to find my little spot. Mm -hmm. And I love that, that, kind of the kind of interaction that you have between the space and the user. Yep. And again, that goes back to spatial design. Yep. That goes back to architecture yeah. as a as a mainframe, as yep. a framework, you know? Yeah. yeah. And how did you manifest the these concepts of uh, a restaurant bar rooted in music into the choices for designing the space? How do you make the connection? Like, oh, because I have this concept uh for this particular uh, place and this image in my head and I want this particular texture, I want this particular material. Mm. What is What was that process like? Um, again, that's through my years of travels. Okay. Like just accumulating a sketchbook of ideas in my head, whether it's Tokyo, mm. Barcelona, yep. Berlin, you know, or everywhere or anywhere I go mm. that I see certain ways of 
people doing things. Whether it could be a traditional shop house or it could be going to say Kobe mm. where, you know, if you go to a straight up drip, like traditional drip coffee bar, you know, picking out certain elements that they do that you go, hey, that's a very interesting touch point. You know, the seats might be lower. So if you go to New York, if you go to diners, the tables are never at traditional dining table heights. Mm. being 750mm so 75cm yep. which is your traditional table height now I'm going obviously very scientifically and very numerically but all these things work mm. so if you go to off track you will realize that most in fact all of my dining tables are not at dining height they are at diner heights which is like 680 to 700 they're yep. slightly lower than dining heights and the reason for doing that is because when you sit there <clears throat> and you rest your elbows on the table you're able to just be more relaxed. You're able to just kind of huddle and just sink almost yeah. into the table <laughs> in the seats, right? Yeah. As opposed to a higher table where you are made to feel like, oh, I'm in a restaurant. Mm. I need to behave myself. Yeah. But off track is like the opposite of that. You come in, you don't understand why, but you just sink into your seat and suddenly you realize you're two wines in, you're comfortable, you don't ever want to leave. Yeah. And all these things are all made precisely with... Uh, a mathematical <laughs> dimension to it. Yeah. It goes back to numbers, like, yeah. you know, using, yeah, numbers to, to make, uh, uh, again, true architecture to make things work. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a science. Yeah. But at the same time, it's also rooted in these very metaphysical state of being in a space. You, yeah. you don't understand yeah. why you're comfortable, but yeah. you are. Yeah. It's like, oh, maybe I'm in a diner. Mm -hmm. But you don't quite consciously know why you're being in a diner yeah. because the tables are lower. Yeah. It's as practical as that. Yeah. Because I can imagine a lot of these things, um, it's mostly experiential and we don't consciously uh, choose to interpret these different things. Exactly. It's just by doing it, the action or the, the somatic experience of it, you you kind of feel a certain way. Exactly. We can't help it. You can't help it mm. because we came from the womb. Yep. You know, we, 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 are, we, we are naturally... Uh, we naturally gravitate towards comfort, yep. towards like feeling warm, protected, yep. right? So, and these things comes from proportion, dimensions, yep. state of thing of, of one element versus to the next. Yep. Like for example, if you sit on a stool, does the stool have a slight embankment in the seat so that when you sit, right, you get hugged into the seat mm -hmm. more or as opposed to a flatter stool mm -hmm. where maybe you can't sit for too long yep. because the surface is harder. Yeah. All these little things make sense. Yeah. It, it impacts the way you use a space, mm. whether you can be in a space longer or not. Yeah. All these things matter. Yep. Details. Yep. Yeah. And how do you incorporate these uh, design psychology um, into the, the spatial design of it? How do you ensure that um, the, I guess the outcome is what you intended? Is it always as uh, linear and as straightforward as that? Or is it always a little bit of risk that uh, the outcome is not as you intended? Oh yeah, 100%. Like, um, obviously we, I always design uh, from the plan. I always like to sketch on the plan, but I, I don't design the plan in a straightforward way. I design a plan more in terms of how I would envision people flowing through a space. It's like Tai Chi. There are certain moves. Yeah. So, if you have this space, this shell, mm. you kind of think about the trajectories at way, or the ways where people might possibly move through the space. Yep. Up and down, yep. left, right, yep. diagonally. Yep. So I create these flow charts in the space, mm. like a mental flow chart. Yep. Then I start designing the plan. Yep. Then from there, 
Then you go into details. Then you go into touch points. You go into elevations, sections, your drawings and whatnot. But they all kind of cross and form. They all sort of inform each other yeah. within the same timeline. And you need to allow for serendipity. You can't design everything at once. Even within the, the, the yes. context of spatial yes. design, serendipity, yes. really. You need serendipity. So in, a, in an example of off-track, yeah. when we started demolishing certain existing bits and when we, we realized there was all these other textures within the con- heritage shop house, yeah. like whether it's the exposed windows or what, that made me decide totally different again, you know, and then my design trajectory sort of took uh, a kind of Attention. Uh, yeah. Attention, which yeah. is great. Like, I yeah. think that's beautiful. Like, yep. Then you start realizing, oh, I can reference these things. You know, so if you notice the pebble wash flooring at the start, the mm-hmm. threshold, so if you see, I had two different tiles that were cracked and splattered randomly across the, the because that was referencing the terracotta tiles that I found in the space or like the glass blocks. Yeah. So the new glass block facade was referencing the old glass blocks that I discovered after mm-hmm. hacking. So, all these things are serendipity, are instruments of serendipity, yeah. accidents. Yeah. These are happy accidents that I like. And it makes the design process richer. Yeah. I have to ask, what was the anchoring point for off track? Since you talked about anchoring point mm. about this particular image, what was, do you remember? It's oh. like, um, <laughs> the end, okay. I was in uh, Barcelona many years ago. Yeah. Uh, this was even before La Rambla was like gentrified and like the, the, the La Rambla that it is now. Yeah. I stumbled onto this listening bar way before even listening bar was even a term called Cafe Royale. Yep. Just right off this little street, quiet as fuck. You stumble in and you go in. My mind was blown. Full vinyl wall. Wow. This console that was just right smack against the vinyl wall. Timber laden force. Yo, that image, right, was the ghost. It's stuck in my head forever yeah. embedded in my chasing it. <laughs> yeah, chasing it so you know you're chasing your image yeah. and the next one was in room Tokyo uh, run by uh, Shuya Okino part of a Kyoto Jazz Massive uh, the room is like again a very small bar slash, slash club basement and typical Tokyo vibes you know you have to sneak through this yep. small tiny aspiral yep. stacks and when you get in the first thing you see was the Japanese bartender shaving a block of ice into its highball. And this is way before all this like hipster bar it's like culture. Trendy, like, yeah, yeah. It's like that was a really trendy before yeah. it was trendy. So that blew my mind again. Yeah. So that was on like my second like, <laughs> like third eye opening. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, what yeah. Is this? yeah. So these things really stuck with me and these were the departure points of off track. Like I wanted to transport the experience of what I felt yeah. at that point in time to crystallize it for people yeah. and off track. Yeah. Simply put. Yeah. yeah. And about the example that you shared about when you hacked away the world and you saw like these heritage pieces, what inspired you or gave you the, the confidence to say, okay, let's take a tangent. Let's run with this particular idea. Uh, I didn't really plan for it, but let's run with it. And yeah. this is ultimately what it's going to be. What gave you the confidence to do that? I think just years of already... Still experience. Yeah, still experience. Okay, I think okay. it just boils down to experience. Knowing okay. that the clash works, that that awkwardness works, mm-hmm. that the clash of something clean versus rough yeah. kind of works. And you know already. And I guess it helps with that you have a bit of taste too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, which, I mean, again, not, not, and that's not to say, that's not being me being arrogant saying yep. I got better taste. I'm yep. just saying that taste comes from experience, yep. knowing what already works, yep. what combination works, what permutations yep. work. I was just applying 
all of that into yeah. off track. But it's like basically, I was just applying my chi in the off track. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But what 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 you what you you elaborated about taste? It it reminded me of what you mentioned about failures because mm. without failing. X number of times, you really wouldn't know what works. Exactly. Cause you kind of only have, you can try once, oh, this color and this color, whether it works or not. If it doesn't work, then you need the guts to, to, to try again. And it's only with this multiple, uh, uh, iterations and trying and trying. And then when it comes to off track, it hits. Yeah. It hits. Exactly. I mean, it's like, just like, uh, fonts, mm. typography. It's the same thing. Like, you need to understand the pre the, the basics and the foundations, your kerning, your spacing, yep. your sense, your serif and all that, uh misalignment, alignments and all that, before you can even or grid placing, yep. before you can even design a good font. It's the same thing. Yep. Like that's what separates a good font and a bad font. And you can coil out once you're trained with yep. the eye to coil out, right? Yep. Same process. You gotta go through that process, the rigorous process yep. of failures, of distillation, of filtration, yep. of just really reducing it to its primordial state you know yeah and i'm obsessed with that yeah and i'm obsessed with my creative journey being about that now yeah whether it's djing yeah designing the next menu for off track or yeah. like, it's reducing it reducing 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 it yeah so it's not about the idea of reduction feels a bit paradoxical sometimes when it of comes course. to creativity because as creatives, we like to overthink things. Yeah. We like to keep adding on to things. But what you're, you're saying sounds like the total opposite to reduce things to the core essence of it and to yeah. figure out uh, what is the, what is the, what are you trying to say of it? And that should be it. 100%. It's just like designing your own home, mm. right? There's always this tendency to try to over-accessorize your home to the, to the last bits. But I think there's beauty if you just leave certain parts of your home as it is. Mm -hmm. Let it grow over time because your taste and your behaviors in space will change. So why over-design when you know your behaviors are malleable? Mm. Human beings are malleable. Our behaviors are completely flexible. They, 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 they go I think we forget this sometimes. We forget this because yeah. <laughs> we, we want to chase because mm. we, we are all obsessed with chasing. Yeah. We read Popeye, we read Casa Brutus. We Pinterest. Want Pinterest. <laughs> we want the latest, you know, like, wow, we want the Togo sofa. Yeah. Fine, get yeah. the Togo sofa. Yeah. But make sure you leave a space for something else to grow, you know? Get your designer furniture. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. We all love our shit, but let it grow. And Design isn't about growth. Design is about degrowth, I think. Degrowth? Really, this is the first time I've heard of it, yeah. And I think degrowth has already been this uh, surging way of looking at things. And there are a lot, a lot of practitioners and designers out there emphasizing on degrowth. Yep. Designing through degrowth. Mm. Designing enough that you don't add to the world's problems of overproduction mm -hmm. or overconsuming, mm -hmm. or like designing with bad materials like you know very much in the same as uh, arguing as bad fashion yeah. or quick fashion yeah. same fast fashion sorry same shit yeah. you know? so I have to ask reflecting the conversation back to you was there an aspect of your life that surprised you and you you just let it uh, be and it grew into something that, that surprised you was there an aspect of your life or was it a certain creative uh, pursuit that you didn't think or you didn't expect it to be uh, like Mm. something so big but it just surprised you was there something like that um i think it's like a, a combination of all that mm. um okay i'll give you an example like um pre-pandemic i was running this 10 man 10 man spatial design archi firm like a proper firm with a few other partners called fur associates and after um just right before the pandemic 
uh, I gave up, I gave them up, liquidated my shares because mm. I was burnt out. Yeah. I just kind of went on a very vague, ambiguous journey, but I also needed the break anyway. Mm. So I started teaching in NUS, mm. year three architecture design studio. Never had any ideas about even setting up my current spatial design consultancy called Drone. Yeah. Now. And, bef- and, and I wasn't conscious of it. I just said, you know what? Okay, let it, let it breathe. Eventually I felt I was ready. The name was born, Drone, because I, I thought, okay, that's an interesting name. Because it, it feels like I see everything like, like I see a drawing. So like drawn naturally. Like so it feels right to, to yeah, you. It feels yeah. right to me. It just came quite naturally. And then before I knew it, I had I had 10 projects during a pandemic which I designed. That is what, incredible. Uh, yeah, yeah. With Park Bench Delhi. Yeah. The second, the, obviously the second one, yeah. uh, which uh, shout outs to Dre. He very, uh, uh, I'm very grateful to him. He gave me that uh, project which mm. kind of became the springboard for many other projects after that. And before I knew it, I became the busiest designer on the block yep. within COVID yep. and I did 10 projects. Yeah. And that was completely just serendipity. It was just yeah. the concept. Okay, you know what? Let's go. Yeah. Finish one project. Do, it, do the best you can. Dude, it just, it just grew from there. And yeah. before I knew it, this group uh, from Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, saw my project mm. on Instagram, gave me an interview on, on Zoom Two so years later, I'm consulting for all their projects. In That's Canada, crazy. Designing close to like 10 projects now for them. Yeah. So you know what I mean, Kev? Like, it's a trip. <laughs> <laughs> but, Completely, but yeah. It's, it's a trip. Like for me, the last few years have been a trip. It's been the greatest blessing. Mm. But I also realized that it didn't come overnight. <clears throat> I've, I've spent years on my trade, on my craft. <clears throat> I spent hours at it. I've been hard at work. Mm. I think a lot of people don't see the blood, sweat, and tears that go behind it. I've been hard at my game for the longest time. Yep. I've done my work. Mm. You know, um, maybe maybe the maybe the flower is just growing now. Maybe I've watered enough of the seeds. Mm. It's growing. I learned to respect that. Yep. But at the same time, I'm still looking. I'm still looking forever to be curious. I'm still yep. looking towards like curiosity. Yep. I'm still curious about other things. I'm yep. thinking about other things. Yep. But at the same time. I'm making sure whatever I have right now <clears throat> is moving in a way that's true to what I, true to my values. You know? Yeah. Like staying, 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 staying creative in the most soulful manner, if you like. Yeah. Yeah. So having shared what you just shared, um, what does it tell you or what does it illuminate to you about the idea of careers and professions? Because it feels like something unexpected. It feels like something that you didn't actually consciously plan for the things or your network of friends or the or the relationships that you build up over the years just bore fruit and it just uh introduce you these these different mm-hmm. jobs and you just wrote the momentum of it. Yeah. So what what does it illuminate to you about the idea of planning? Oh, I need to be at this particular title, I need to be at this particular point in my career at this particular time as a creative. I think when I read Sean's to see his interview, when he very profoundly said that um uh, well, this this was obviously after he sold Stussy. Um, he said that he was never really interested in destinations or goals mm-hmm. or where or which benchmark he would place himself at. He was always interested in the goals being the process, being the journey. Yeah. That really changed the way I I looked at myself as a professional, yeah. as a creative. And obviously there's lamb there's certain things that you aspire towards, you know, maybe 
getting more recognized for your work and stuff. Of course, I'm not going to lie. I mean, we all have a sense of vanity. We're all vain that way, right? But I just learned to become less conscious of that. And mm. I guess maybe following the advice of my dad, whom I'm really grateful to, that he he said once during my internship with him in Jakarta, many, many years ago, he said, it doesn't matter what you do with it. What matters is that your integrity stays with you, with your projects. Because your integrity is what takes you to the next step. Your integrity and your values is what will and allow you to have longevity. Yo, that's that's my mantra. Mm-hmm. Let's stay with me. And that will that will fucking stay with me my whole life. Yeah. Because I think whatever I have right now is the result of that. Is the strict adherence to that to that belief. Yeah. Because he has carried my dad through his life. Yeah. He didn't exactly have the the, the smoothest life as an architect. I come from a family of architects. Really. It's wow. Like, it's kind of quite intense. Like yeah, it sounds pretty intense. It's pretty crazy. It's, yeah. it's actually a trip. You yep. know? But I, I learned so much from his, his undying commitment to his integrity that I think I have really benefited from that worldview. Yeah. That the reason why I'm able to have the work I have right now where people are still constantly recommending me to other people and it's all by word of mouth. I don't even do advertising mm. bro i don't <laughs> all the all the work that's come to me there's no paid advertising incredible there. i don't believe in that shit yeah it, it all came true just maybe because of my of my integrity mm-hmm. just 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 get it done yeah <laughs> so i have to ask i have two questions based off that what yeah. does integrity look like to you what does it mean because i feel that integrity is something that means different things to different people it could be the way you act. It could be the way you treat others. It could be the way you uh, you just show up to certain projects and you get it done. It's, your, your word is your bond. Basically. What does it look like to you? Your word is your bond. Be polite. Mm. Be respectful to everyone. Be polite to all the people working on site because you deal with so many different people yeah. from different cultures. Yeah. Whether it's your Bangladeshi to your electrician yeah. to your Chinese uh, ironmongers to your mm. steelmen to your electrician to your contractors to your, the most highly educated English speaking clients or whatever. I don't really care who those people are. I treat everyone with the same respect. Mm. No one is greater than the other person. I don't pander to money just because that person has money. Mm. I will conduct my being as fairly, as truthfully as I can in my daily runnings, in my daily interaction with people on site and off site is really important to me. And that every moment, every interaction is important that way. Mm. And I think that really is crucial in ensuring that your project finishes on time, (laughs) finishes on budget. All these things are mechanics. They are really important. Yeah. And I've seen so many people just being assholes to workers on site. Mm -hmm. And these workers, when they get disgruntled, what happens? The project suffers. Because they they will fuck it up. And rightfully so, because you are an asshole to them. Yeah. I don't want to be that asshole. Mm-hmm. And I genuinely am interested in talking to people. And I mean, I'm, I I can speak Bahasa, I can speak Malay, I can speak Hokkien, yeah. I can speak Teochew, yeah. you know. Uh, I can kind of ca- cast a bit of profanity just to like, <laughs> you know, just because just, just it's like camaraderie, right? Yeah, it's, like, yeah. it's, like, it's like you bonding with the people on site because yeah. it's it's a brotherhood. It's a sisterhood. Like it's, it's, it's important. Yeah. That, that kinship is important. Right? Yeah. And I value these interactions. And yeah. if you enjoy those things, Trust me, man. Like your projects will be okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the second part to the the initial question was, 
How did you come to determine that these sets of values that you hold important to you, how did you come to decide on them? And what are these values that are important to you? I just, I think it's just knowing that I can go, that I can go home at night sleeping peacefully. No, no, knowing that I've conducted myself mm. as, as, as best as I can as a human being. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's done. It's just it's as simple as that. I, I just want to go home and yeah. sleep peacefully, yeah. knowing yeah. that I haven't screwed anyone up mm-hmm. uh, before. And yeah. this today, if yeah. I had a bad day, if I made someone feel bad, I'm gonna feel really shitty, and I will make it a point the next day and say, "Hey, you know what? I acted way out of line. I'm sorry about that. Uh, let's be cool. Yeah. You know, we all we all give into that to our emotions and our anger." Mm. Yep. especially as creatives yep. but I, I think it's really about just wanting to, to sleep well at night that yeah. knowing that you have not screwed anyone else yep. over that you have conducted yourself to the best yeah. you know, like, that's yeah. an important metric to aspire to it's, imp- it's important because bottom line is it's about that yeah. you need to you need to make sure everyone wins yeah. yeah and I can imagine in your particular space of spatial design and architecture it's very easy to get sleepless nights because you have projects running and you need it by a certain deadline exactly and Murphy's Law, something wrong will happen, something will fuck up and you need it by Friday and yeah. it fucks up on Thursday. And something will always <laughs> fuck up. Even to this day. Mm-hmm. Even to now where I have, I can very quickly anticipate problems. Trust me. Yeah. Something will still fuck up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I guess it's also for you to to stay calm when, yes. when something like that happens, yeah. right? And not oh, freak out and, not freak and out. uh, uh, lambast your employees and stuff like yeah, just to stay calm there's no point and also don't react respond mm. there's, it, a difference there's a difference between, yes that's a difference there's a difference between reacting and responding reacting is when you're angry and you're just reacting you don't care about repercussions responding is when you let the reaction simmer down first mm. step back calibrate yourself and then you respond that's a lot of work, man. <laughs> work. It takes years and experience to do that. Yep. But when you can get better at that, your projects will run a lot smoother. Yeah. Yep. Because then you're able to write in a better way. Mm. You're able to write more sensibly without, <laughs> instead of going, I do not agree. It's just because I don't think so. But why? Oh, because I don't know. Because I'm angry. No, it's not about that. Yeah. It's because of so and so and so. You reason it out. Mm. Lovely. Um, As we wind on this conversation, I'm curious to know, has there been a collaboration that you have done before that, kind of pushed you to think about uh, that particular aspect of things differently, where it be in music, be it uh, spatial design, be it architecture. Was there a collaboration like that? Do you remember? Yeah. Um, I We actually collaborated with Casio G-Shock, mm. uh, Darkening Wax, in 2017 yeah. on a, a GD1000 watch. Yep. Uh, that was a really fun project because it was really the first time a music label was, you know, collaborated with, a, with a, such an iconic uh, watch lay a brand and manufacturer that we were able to really like lend our taste and obviously our sort of point of view into yep. the curation uh, of the package uh, from the the box you know to the USB with like a compilation of all the artists that that's crazy for all the soundtrack yep. to accompany the the watch yep. so it was really like an ecosystem like a product so that was fun because it it really allowed me to dabble in all the different aspects of what I love yep. from music to product design to yep. space and all that and yeah it was a, it was a great project I yeah. always held that project very dear to my heart yeah. Yeah. and you mentioned about um, gentrification as the, as you have traveled to a wide a variety of places these places change over time and when you revisit these places and you see the change that has happened how do you feel about it? 
ah, vexed. Okay. <laughs> like I'm part of the problem. Mm. <laughs> but at the same time, uh, I understand what led to that gentrification. I mean, it's, it's the same thing. Is that gentrification is a global global phenomenon that has really happened for so long because mm. real estate and what whatnot, right? When, when real estate comes in, identifies an area, that's when it all starts, right? Yep. So, and we are part of the problem, yep. right? Instagram is part of the problem, yep. right? So, I think gentrification is healthy as long it benefits local stakeholders. What do you mean by that? That means local businesses. If the gentrification doesn't strengthen or empower local businesses that are existing within that area, mm. then I'm not for it. Because then if it's just foreign entities coming into populated area, then it's just capitalism all over again. Mm. And you can see in various parts of the world, every city, big cities, they have the same chains. Mm. Where's your mom and pop stores? Where's your brick and mortars? Yeah. Where's that little vendor by the street? Where's yeah. the kiosk, right? If the kiosks are still there, if there's a, a, a kind of traditional local flavor there, I fuck with that. I fuck with the kind of gentrification. Yeah. But if I go to a gentrif gentrified area where I, all I see is H&M yeah. and like just another third wave coffee spot, which, which, is, which could be foreign owned, I don't fuck with that. Yeah. And you see through that. Yeah. And the more you travel, you see through that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and Instagram is so, it, 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 it it empowers that kind of forced gentrification. It, it empowers that type of gentrification, mm. that sort of exported gentrification, yeah. where it's nothing about a local fabric. People go there just to take shots of yeah. that photo of that corner of the cafe because why? They're seen 20,000 times in, the in, in Instagram. Yeah. Therefore, I need to go there. Yeah. But what's the relationship and the context to its urban surroundings, mm. to, its, to its predecessors? Yeah. Do you even know? If you don't, then... Are you actually traveling, traveling? Or are you just traveling to consume yeah. an image of your travel? Yeah. yeah. I'm very conscious of that now when I'm in trouble. Yeah. yeah. But I guess it's also one thread direction, isn't it? There is, we're not going to go back to the times no, when no. there is no Google Maps, there is no, no. smartphones, there is no Instagram. Yeah. In fact, things can be argued that it is accelerated towards more of a destination travel where what, what, what came to mind when you were talking about it is people being uh, fixated on certain structures in different countries and then beelining straight to that but they, but they miss everything else yeah. um, along the way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think what's important is when you travel, be conscious how you travel. Be conscious that when you hit certain areas, take the time to go check out the local spots. Mm -hmm. Don't just go to that trendy spot. Yeah, I mean, check out the trendy spot but maybe go check out some mom and pop stores. Maybe check out their Caribbean store. Yeah. Go have some doubles. Or no, go have some like really nice um, authentic kebab in one spot. You know what I mean? Like just go slightly further out of that Instagrammable bubble yeah. because there's still many other areas that you can tap into and find uh, inspiration from that. And yeah. perhaps even learn about the local neighborhood. Why are there certain demographics that converge there? Yeah. You know? Like then through that, find out about music, find yeah. out about the food that they eat. That's important. You know, like, so even, say, if I go to Berlin now, there's still a lot of neighborhoods that are very local, mm. like Malbit and a lot of these other slightly further, like, fringe, like uh, fringes that are further out. Like, check them out. Mm. Like, don't just go to... The, the usual spots yeah, that you always like, go to. Just don't, <laughs> don't just go to Kreuzberg or like... Yeah. I mean, that's fine. I, mean, I go there too, you know? Yeah. I mean, Mitte is completely like Soho now, you know? Like, like Mitte is not even Berlin anymore, you know? But just... Just explore, yeah. like explore with more awareness. Yeah. You know? yeah, but it takes a sense of exploration and wonder and discovery as well. That and discomfort. 
Discomfort, yes. I wanted Again, to say I will that. go back to discomfort. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm curious to know your take on originality and creativity uh, specifically because I've always had this notion where, let's say if we, we, we feel that we are lacking in certain aspects in Singapore and we travel overseas and we look at the sights and sounds and see what's happening over there. And we always like to try to bring it back to Singapore. Mm. Um, is it something that you have experienced or you have noticed or uh, like this idea that we always want to replicate things that uh, have worked in overseas markets and try to replicate them in Singapore? Is it something that you've noticed? Definitely. Mm. I think there's always been a cancer in the way we we view uh, creativity and mm. appropriation and stuff. I yep. think it's still an ongoing phenomenon. Mm. Uh I think there's more conscious decisions by a lot of creatives now to tap more into your your region, what, what I'll call regionalism, like tapping more into your most immediate neighborhoods, getting, you know, uh, getting inspiration from your archetypes, your existing typologies and whatnot, which is, which is great. Yeah. But you also need to understand the intrinsic meaning and nature of extracting from your typologies. Mm. Is it, again, a visual thing or is it more metaphysical? You know, do you do a research and yep. stuff? So, I think these are the kind of things that you need to ask yourself, the kind of questions that you need to pose yep. to yourself, right? Um, and I don't obviously, I don't necessarily think whatever works elsewhere can work here. There's so many examples that have shown yeah. whatever works outside doesn't necessarily work. Why? Because the climate might be different. People's behaviors are different. The way you move through a city is different. Mm. Um, there's, there's a lot of richness that we can tap into yep. from here from your five foot ways to your void decks to your interstitial sort of spaces that you might ignore. All these things you can tap in. Yeah. It's just about peeling off that layers from your eyes before you can see that. But again, then that's the irony. We are an eraser city. Mm. We constantly erase and we just keep looking for the new stuff, right? But how do you then have originality within that erasure? That's the challenge. Yeah. I think. How do you grapple with the notion of creating any um, lasting sense of identity or cultural um, significance or artistic significance in Singapore, because you mentioned it's an eraser city. It feels as though that there's a sense of limit or nihilism that anything I create, give it a span of time, five years, 10 years, it will be gone. Yeah. How, yeah. how do you grapple with that sense? I actually celebrate now. Celebrate. Yeah, I okay. love the temporary nature of mm. things now. Like, um, I don't know. I think um, I'm not so sure whether you know who Rem uh, Rem Kuhas is. No, who is that? He's a very renowned Dutch uh, architect. Uh, very, you know, he's um, he, he's done a lot. But um, what was very interesting of his critique and his dissection of Singapore is that he said Singapore is a highly generic city because we import everything from yeah. everywhere, right? Even our food is in, importation of so many different cultures. Yeah. Therefore, the beauty of it lies is generic nature and when I thought about that right I, I never understood what he meant I mean obviously those weren't his direct words but that was the general yeah. sort of, you know, summary um, so it took me a long time to understand what he actually meant mm. but when I actually did there was a lot of merit in what he said mm. and I think there's a lot of charm when you're not like Europe where you're, you're so provincial. Yeah. Everything is old. Everything has to relate back to- That's baggage. Do you know that's baggage? <laughs> we don't have baggage. We adopt. Mm -hmm. We are just chameleons. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's a lot of beauty in that. I think there's a lot of beauty. But I think the, the, the crux is how aware are you of that? Do you simply take appropriate and copy and paste without thinking? Or do you copy and paste knowing- the references that you take from. Yep. 
I think it's about that. It's about remixing. Yep. We are all remixing. Yep. Nothing is new. Everything has been done. But it's how do you remix? How do you apply your point of view yep. to their remixing? Yep. That's how you can be authentic. Yep. That's how you can have longevity. Because I can imagine taking and adopting without much thought or just uh, yeah. taking the facade of it. It's a, it's, it's a form of adoption as well. Yeah, it's a form of adoption as well. But we all adopt. Mm. But how deep is your adoption? Yep. That's the game. Yeah. Yep. Fantastic. I guess in closing, I have two, um, just two more questions for you. Um, in, in line with this conversation that we've been having, what has made you uncomfortable recently that kind of surprised you and you realized that hey, it's actually not so bad? Yeah, has there been an experience like that that uh, is, 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 is recent in your mind? Um, I think it goes back to traveling. Okay. I mean, and swimming? No matter, <laughs> yeah, swimming? Swimming, <laughs> of course as well. Yeah. But I think with traveling, right, it's like, no matter how seasoned you are as a traveler, you're always bound by notions of, I guess, comfort and discomfort. Yes. Certain areas that you always think, oh, it's too dangerous to go. Or you always have this preconceived You know, you kind of, you all, look, all of us have predisposed, we are predisposed to think of certain things or someone when you see certain yep. things and you go like, oh, is that, you know, you always rely on that very brainwashed side of yep. you to go, maybe we shouldn't. But then when you actually immerse yourself and you strip yourself away from all these preconceived notions, which are dangerous notions, and you immerse yourself in an immediate surrounding or a situation and you realize, hey, it's actually as normal as everything else in your normal everyday life. That really destabilizes you and you realize how constructed our entire world mm. is mm. and it's, was and it still is. Mm. Whether from your racial profiling to, you know, your right wing, your left wing, yep. your your neoliberalist, yep. whatever, right? You realize there's so much in the world that's a myth mm. that you need to constantly destabilize the myth for yourself yeah. in order to exist as, as real as you can in this yeah. timeline. Yeah. But it's always that that very, very important and uh, delicate balance of challenging your own notions and being aware of, of them in real time in and real be time. like, okay, maybe I want to do this, but your every fiber of your being is telling, telling you not to and it's telling your you how bad o- yeah, it is. Your OS is telling yeah. you no. Then you have to really, you know, recalibrate OS. Mm. Every day you just, you know, like, yeah, recharge your OS. I don't know, like reboot your OS. <laughs> you need to reboot your OS, you know, yeah. like, I'm conscious of that now. Mm. I, I want to reboot my OS constantly. Yep. Yeah. Fantastic. I think my last question for you ties back to what you initially shared in the beginning about curiosity. I'm curious to know, at this point in your life, what is curiosity? How do you understand this um, innate, intangible energy that seems to have been fueling um, so much of your life and continues to fuel it? How do you understand it? I think it comes from a place of like... Uh, the fear of not knowing. <laughs> the fear of not knowing. Maybe fear is a strong word, but wanting to... I get I get restless when I don't know certain things mm. or when I see certain terms. Yeah. I don't understand So it. you have to wiki it, check I, it. Yeah. I need to wiki and check it. Whether it's a design term or it could be some mundane, non, you know, non-design related yep. thing. It could be whatever. Yep. I love that. I, I, it sparks me. When I see a certain thing, I'm just, oh, why? You know, mm. like how? Uh, and there's, I feel that there's an otaku culture mm. in every form of society, in every strain. Yep. And I love learning from every strain. Yep. And that, as, as possibly uh, as possibly in depth as I can. You know, yeah. That's that's how I'm wired as a person. Yep. I, I crave for that. It keeps me alive. Like yep. without that, I think I'm yeah. I'm, You're just floating. I'm done. I'm yep. done. Yeah. 
do you think curiosity is something that um could be taught or could be uh uh trans Transfer is, is, is a really bad word, but do you think curiosity is something that can be taught to people? To, I, think, to pursue I think it things? can be nurtured. Nurtured, yeah. yeah. I don't think it can be taught. How it can, can curiosity be nurtured? be nurtured? I think you can perhaps plant uh, certain situations or certain uh, scenarios in yeah. people and it's up to them whether they want to open up their eyes to those scenarios and those situations. Yep. So you can nurture by placing them in situations, but it's up to them whether they, they take the situation it's, it's, or not. It is like gardening. It's you like just gardening. plant it and you let the seed grow. That's right. It's like peeling the onion. Yeah. There's ways to peel it. Mm. You just got to peel it. Mm. So you can stop halfway. Yeah. You can chop it up, you can dice it, or you can just string it like, you know, like, 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 you know, and follow the veins. Yeah. It's completely up to you. Yeah. yeah. That's a beautiful way to end this. Um, Is there anything else you would like to talk about before we end? Uh, no, man. I just want to say thank you for this. Uh, it's been so nice uh, talking about this. And uh, yeah, thanks for allowing me to be here mm. and expressing my little uh, journey. And I hope it helps uh, someone else uh, who who might, you know, want to embark on this creative journey to know, hey, um, if anything, do it for yourself. Perfect. And before we close, uh, where can people find you? What is what is the address for Off Track? Uh, do you have anything you want to uh, plug? Um, yeah, just check out offtrack.sg on Instagram. That's my listening bar. Yep. Dark and Wax on Instagram. Yeah. And for my own uh, personal handle, that's uh, funk underscore uh, bastard, B-S-T-R-D. Yeah. Uh, Dean Chu, yeah. Yep. Signing off. One last question. How much has the vinyl collection been growing this year? Oh my God, it's uh, continuous. <laughs> I'm, I'm close to... Uh, Maybe 8,000, 9,000. 8,000. Yeah, okay. It's kind of crazy. So, so this is part of that obsessional otaku yeah, culture yeah, you're yeah, talking yeah. about. Okay. This is the, this is the, <laughs> this the manifestation this of it. Manifest- <laughs> this is the unhealthy one. <laughs> this is the, this is the deep one. This is the, this is, uh, this is the, this is the pornographic side. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Dean. Um, thank you for this beautiful conversation. Thank, thank you, you so for much. your time. Yeah. Appreciate thank it. You. Take care. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode and feel inspired. If you enjoyed what you heard thus far, do give us a follow on Instagram. And don't forget to share and subscribe. Stay tuned for the next episode.